right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the introduction for The New Federalist. It is a project I've been working on for about a year, but I finally have a manuscript. And I'm in the process of contacting agents and publishers, also trying to uh, develop more of a platform with it. So with that said, my name is Brendan Rummel. Uh, but for the purposes of the New Federalist, I have taken up the mantle of Publius. And I want to open with a George Carlin quote that I'm sure you've heard before, but I still believe it's really accurate. The reason they call it the American dream is because you have to be asleep to see it. I know many people right now are feeling outraged, saddened, frustrated, whatever it may be, overwhelmed especially by the current state of the world. And I'm right there with you. This project came from a desire to look at the polarizing issues facing us and find a way to analyze and begin to educate not only myself, but you know the broader country on the deeper systemic problems so that we can begin to overcome them. And when I say the broader American people, I also am talking about, you know, groups of both ends of the political spectrum because these issues cannot be overcome through outreach and education when we are so isolated. By uh, looking at deeper systemic issues, we can analyze the history of how America has gotten to where it is. And when we get to the core of the societal hurdles that are facing us, we can address the poison at the source. I have aimed to do this in my work by specifically highlighting how our deeply ingrained individualism and white supremacy in the U.S. are contributing greatly to our societal inequities. They can never be overcome through outreach and education when Americans are so isolated. We are more disconnected from each other now than at any time before. There have been recent polls that show less than 40% of Americans believe their neighbors have good intentions. And in 2020 into 2021, we've seen a huge rise in hateful rhetoric and distrust among all aspects of our society. Perhaps our individual relationships with the government have been most eroded, especially in the last five years when <laughs> the rhetoric of figures like Tucker Carlson and Trump has only reinforced the idea that the other side is out to get us. And they've spurred their audience on to live shamelessly in ignorance to the actual harm being done. They've turned everything from reading Dr. Seuss to getting a vaccine that protects you against COVID into a politicized issue which inevitably turns us into life or death fights for who can prevail over the evil of the opposing party naturally left. The unfortunate aspect of this reality is that the majority are too caught up in their own trivial issues. And we ignore anyone who's actually struggling because the petty squabbles for power and an identity politics wasteland never cease. I mean, even from the left too, this always is happening constantly. Um, we have these petty side issues that are spurred on by the media and <clears throat> it is by design. We'll get to this. Trust me. Trust me. I just wanted to end that little bit by saying right now our backs are quite literally turned to each other and we're running in the opposite directions. Some people are sprinting in the opposite direction. 
life within our own echo chambers has seen people refuse to educate themselves or even attempt to understand the issues which are slowly pushing us to the edge of a cliff. What we're facing with climate change, the extreme racial inequities, police brutality, the challenge of democracy itself, I mean, it is undoubtedly complex and intimidating to even begin. Demanding change in an attempt to, t- to take our democracy back into the hands of the people takes assertiveness and a refusal to back down. But millions of Americans have become disillusioned by the myriad of chainsaws that the country is metaphorically juggling. We feel as though any contribution is futile because of the seemingly impossible amount of deadly problems being balanced, especially while we see the consequences of our environmental failures, radicalism festering, and rampant greed by those in power threatening to cut off a limb at any point. Many have given up on America before they even try to make a difference, which is understandable, but I want to try to combat that with this work. And we are going to have to stop viewing the world in a binary way if we have any hope of coming together. The way that our capitalist system is structured makes everyone, even rich people who you know, appear to have it all, exist in this constant pursuit of more. And the binary thought that we have ingrained as Americans comes from that constant pursuit of more. Just the only thing that matters is money. And so we put aside anything that doesn't directly contribute to us, like attaining something. We've eroded relationships and neglected ourselves, especially. And we have this zero-sum thought that the only idea our fellow humans are good for is inherently being against us because they only care about themselves too, like we believe we do. We see the world in a zero-sum way that is driven by monetary forces purely. And we label anything that can endanger our gain of usually money, but sometimes status. We label anything that impedes that as bad. And think of all of the labels that the media and outside sources have given to different communities, different, the lifestyles, what have it, that we just inherently take at face value. So we adopt that group as being bad in our eyes. And we don't have any care for the human experiences and connections that are a necessity in having a successful democracy, especially. The structures that have been imposed on the country keep us chasing a hollow idea of money as the end-all be-all to existence, preventing true fulfillment beyond however much physical wealth we have. Our animosity towards each other and the ignorance of the implications from the path which we're heading down has been directed by a political sphere that wants to push us to anger and vehement arguments. That is literally been the agenda of the Republican Party since Gingrich. So this is the Southern plan, arguably, too. But this is where I want to discuss a little bit about how that division has been intentional. Because if you understand human rationality, which it <laughs> our actions can be analyzed through the OODA loop. I, I don't know how many of you have heard of that, but it stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. 
in this huge period of change where all these old orthodoxies are ending and people feel new coming in, our establishment has been able to successfully interrupt that OODA loop for Americans by turning us against each other. And as we are uncertain of our own positions in the rapidly changing world, we have no clear path forward and we just fall back on the status quo, the normal times idea. We need to understand that the division among us is manufactured by the people who benefit from the status quo. They are scared of the set hierarchies being challenged and they want to bring us back to a normal that they benefit most from. So (laughs) think of the Make America Great Again. Who benefited most in the 50s and 60s? The New Deal statistically really only impacted white families and the middle class was booming at that time, but white middle class. Anyways, we need to shift our own awareness and respect the needs of our fellow humans. And just putting yourself in somebody else's shoes will allow you to see through surface level prejudices. If you can put aside those and connect with people, we can educate ourselves on the true roots of disenfranchisement rather than the identity-based distractions we know all too well. So I want to give an example of one of those identity-based distractions that has been intentionally crafted around policy, right? So think of the gas tax that has been passed in a state like California. It is a really good legislation for big urban areas because there are a lot of commuters that can afford to pay the little bit of extra tax on their gas. But at the same time, that tax has been hurting the central agricultural area, especially because those farmers rely on their vehicles to get their produce, their product, whatever it may be, to and from farmers markets, the distribution facilities, the retail, whatever they're selling to. And it's really hard for them to afford to keep up with that because that area isn't taking into account LA minimum wage or something like the inflation that happens there. So the problem there is that the policy has been overgeneralized and no consideration was taken for the rest of the state. And that is reflective of any number of policies in the country that take into account only one specific interest group. And in this case, I wanted to use a law that was reflective of the desires of the people in certain areas, but still harmed others. So the way that this has been turned into another identity-based battle is adding fuel to the fire of Californians wanting to secede and form the state of Jefferson. And that's pretty common among rural populations and urban people laugh at them and, you know, millions of urban folk versus (laughs) tens of thousands of 
you know, farmers out there, like the number discrepancy alone is just why they are laughing at that idea. But like to these farmers and people who live in rural areas, that is their life. The disconnect between communities and parts of our own states makes us write others off as like irredeemable because of preconceived notions we have about them. Just like people in Portland think that (laughs) Southern Oregonians are gun-toting white supremacists, they think that Portland's a bunch of fucking Antifa anarchists. This isolation and dismissal of other communities' realities is (laughs) shaped by our rugged individualism. Everyone has this idea that they should live their life in a certain way to succeed within their own limitations um, because the American dream is achievable if you approach it right. But I'm sure many people think that this is impossible because no matter what they've tried, the line that they've been fed since a kid is a lie. And the new Federalist Project in this podcast, my writing, I want to help piece together this full picture of American disenfranchisement to understand where that American dream has gone wrong and how it has been taken and essentially co-opted by a very few who get to live out a privileged American dream, quote unquote, while the working class now has to live with hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt, mortgages, working barely above a minimum wage job to try to pay that off. I want to go into a little bit of an academic discussion. Some listeners may find that a bit tedious. I apologize in advance, but I think it is necessary to look at our founding fathers and other academic documents from the period to get some answers to how we developed into this sort of plutocratic gun republic that maintains a status quo of white supremacy and savage capitalism. I will explain why I call it savage capitalism in a little bit. This is where the adoption of Publius has come from as well is I want the New Federalist to be a continuation of the discussion between the rights of the individual within the state, what the best model of our republic is and how our policy should be crafted. And the first part, which is book one, is an analysis into the history and reality of our disenfranchisement. Whereas ideally I want to create a book two and another podcast series, which would be examining actual pragmatic policy in action. With that being said, the discussion about individual and states' rights has been basically synonymous with America since the beginning. (laughs) And we need to know that during the time of these academic discussions that I'll be analyzing, 
it was a silent given among our founders that all men meant white men. And this unspoken hierarchy has been enshrined in our constitution and foundational documents because it has been a deep part of American history since Bacon's Rebellion turned the entire hierarchy into racial caste. But that will be a discussion for another time. Madison acknowledged that the interests of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. Yeah, constitutional freedoms were only extended to landowning white men, even in the Bill of Rights. African-Americans were enslaved. Women didn't have suffrage, autonomy, property. And think of all the indigenous cultures that were destroyed in westward expansion. This being said, I want to tie in the French concept. There has been the idea that capitalism can take a beneficial or a savage form. And American history has time and time again taken the savage route, and that is how we have ended up where we are now. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary checks and balances to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? Madison was right in this, and America has become a reflection of the extreme individual greed with a feeling among the populace of needing the status quo because they wouldn't know what to do without that specific hierarchy of white supremacism and savage capitalism. It has been found in various countries that in proportion as commerce has flourished, the land has risen in value. And how could it have happened otherwise? <laughs> so that is Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 12. And he lays out a vision for the country's future prosperity with this, the liberation of white men through the fruits of their labor, in his mind, worshiping at the altar of commerce. Much of this has come to fruition over generations as a certain segment of the population has exponentially grown their wealth. It is necessary to acknowledge that much of the wealth and compounding opportunity the upper class has experienced sprouted from the foundation of slave labor and has always been holding the majority of power based in that hierarchy. But as the nation has evolved and grown, that hierarchy became disproportionate beyond anybody's wildest fears. The angry and malignant passions that Hamilton has warned us of sprung up in defense of these unequal structures. Quote, an enlightened zeal for the energy and efficiency of government has been stigmatized as the offspring of a temper fond of despotic power and hostile to the principles of liberty. And this has emerged from the toxic identity-based culture that weaponizes us. Madison believed that in a free government, the security for civil rights must be the same as that for civil rights. Yet the interpretation of that belief was, has entailed civil rights for a select group of people, a group that reacts with virulence whenever that interpretation is threatened to be extended to groups outside of white men, as we've seen time and time again. And the faith in our institutions has eroded away as we see the power of the people as a check on the government fading into memory while we see our elected leaders become nothing more than vehicles of enforcing that status quo. The people are aware of what Frederick Douglass said, the 4th of July is yours, not mine. Yet we feel no options beyond complacency in the system because American culture has become individualism incarnated. 
and the zero-sum ideal of needing to lose something in order to take the risk of championing, championing an updated framework is holding us back. And I would like to say, full disclosure, I am a straight white man. America has been very fortunate in the resources, social diversity, and the genius of its citizens that Hamilton described the wealth of nations depending upon. And within our competing desires of either embracing change or fighting for the status quo, we have lost sight of this. Our melting pot has been scattered by a morally corrupt system that keeps us beholden to a higher power that dictates everything in our lives. The social contract under which we were founded has evolved as we've progressed into the modern age, but as we enter this period of non-normalcy, with the consequences of past actions coming back to haunt us, we need to remember that the underlying greatness of America is within her. The issue is not state versus federal, left versus right, white versus black, whatever it may be. It is we the American people versus the forces that wish to keep us subservient within that hierarchy that benefits the ruling class. And I cannot emphasize enough how white supremacy damages every community that does not have the benefit of being extremely wealthy. We can exist with individual freedoms in a federal state and we don't have to sacrifice any comfort or opportunity. We can expand our protection of civil rights and self-determination to apply to everybody but it needs a level of understanding and empathy and openness to discourse and changing the way we view the world. It also entails coming to terms with hard truths about race and our positions in the world, looking past perceived slights in a zero-sum culture to value human life, but we can do it. In the same manner our founding fathers wrote of a new country filled with opportunity, I am enamored with the possibilities around us in the land of prosperity America could be. It is necessary to acknowledge the faults of our founders and make reparations to help us come together. Despite whatever perceived differences are on the surface, we have the same deeper desi desires and experience similar emotions. Creating a prosperous society will first necessitate educating ourselves on the reality of disenfranchisement within America instead of fantasizing about being rich while we refuse to risk any vulnerability or connect with those around us. This discussion was meant to show us that no matter where we are and the path we envision ourselves heading down, openness and trust is necessary if we want to have a society that values human life and a collective prosperity more than individual gain. But love conquers all. And that is why I have hope in that. Okay, so that was the end of... My little academic rant, I'm just analyzing the various Federalist papers and essentially framing my response to what the original Federalist was. This whole project is meant to be a look at where we are as individuals within our Federalist system while arguing that in order to overcome the problems that we're going to discuss in further content, we need to have a level of empathy and we need to respect each other much more so than is the norm now. And capitalism is the best system that we've come up with for freedom and mobility. And as with anything, there are various manifestations of it. I 
have discussed how America's particular flair has led to rampant inequality, you know, a rigged market that takes maximum advantage of others and a super selfish society. Say that five times fast. Capitalism itself isn't the issue, but the culture of individualism and hierarchies ingrained in our zero-sum thought are, and it has led us to an extreme version of exploitative enterprise. In this age of rapid change, we need to step outside of the binary idea that everything is a personal gain or loss, and we need to reconcile our propensity to apply individualistic gain to every aspect of our life, even things that are supposed to contribute to the collective good. The desire to secure individual wealth is natural. That's why capitalism has emerged as such a successful system. And it encourages competition to achieve the best innovation that we have to offer. But I argue that the American dream should be a pursuit of gain through capitalistic endeavors with a collectively built society that has a baseline of living standards for its people. We have hundreds of thousands of homeless people not many families are able to afford basic needs of food and shelter in some areas. Like parts of California right now are experiencing over 150 families or individuals, I believe it was individuals, getting evicted from their houses. So, you know, a few dozen families are getting evicted every day and going onto the streets. A society that allows everyone in the nation of the people, by the people, and for the people to prosper and find fulfillment is the end goal. In order to establish that vision, we need to identify our reality and the roots of the issues that plague our country. So while listening, while reading my work in general, know that when I call out racism and oppression, it's not a personal attack necessarily. In some cases, there are individuals that I will call out who have done awful things that I believe should be shown no remorse in many senses, like Joseph Arpaio, for example. We will get to that when we get to that though. But in general, I am not calling out any individual and saying that I hate you. It is meant to com combat the ideas of hate and disenfranchisement. The average American I love and care about, and I want to help attack the logical fallacies that are undermining our beliefs in each other. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. I think that quote from MLK really sums up the goal of the call to action that I'm trying to draw out of people in my work. I want to end this first episode uh, in the New Federalist podcast series on just a little note about our growth, our idea of what growth is in this country. Right now, because we have such zero-sum outlooks on life, we think that growth can only continue if we remain with the status quo. We remain on fossil fuels, uh, using agricultural practices that destroy and pollute millions of acres. Or we believe that we can only achieve the American dream by grinding 70 hours a week. And I want to challenge that idea of what growth should be in our society. Our system 
has been glorifying for decades this uh, idea of being a Bezos or a Kardashian to gain some amount of wealth or personal status that you can just rise above the difficulties of America. And instead of seeing life as a constant pursuit of numbers, we need to see people as individuals with, you know, their own desires who are worthy of respect. And if we can do that, we will be able to understand why people should have access to health care, a stable income that aligns with the cost of living, the ability to live and grow their wealth for future generations that a very specific class of people in America has enjoyed. And I kind of have a plan in bringing this topic up first of empathy, of growth, and discussing the need for changing the way we frame our thought in society. Because if we can censor our metric of growth to be around empathy, it is priming all you listeners, all my audience for thinking more collectively and allowing you to understand where I'm coming from when I make certain statements, which in my upcoming work you may hear and think sounds radical for the status quo. But when viewed from a perspective outside of our individual tunnel vision, it becomes clear that action is necessary to save certain communities and the country at large from collapse. So with so much out of our control and injustice throughout the world overwhelming us, we can turn internally to change the way we view a post-normal world. Instead of expending energy to get back to the status quo, to make it great again, or to grow our money, we can look at our own values and how our actions impact people. We can choose to engage the world empathetically. And if enough individuals start to buy into this, it can affect larger social change. If we place value of life and humanity over money, then we will be able to ensure that we have individual fulfillment and freedom within a society that allows a baseline of living for everybody within it. Why would you needlessly harm others with your actions when you can personally prosper and help at the same time? With the events of the last few years, our country and the world is never going to be the same again. Changes are coming with an ever-expanding population, a climate meltdown, a radicalized political sphere that is super close to fatal conflict. We are on the precipice, and I don't think people realize. Not to mention a global pandemic that has uprooted millions of lives. We can choose to fight against the needs of our collective while hiding in isolation, or we can demand our government adapts to the consequences of our savage capitalist pursuit and create a better standard of life for all. Regardless of how we go about demanding this change, the first step begins by trying to view our growth more empathetically and outside of a purely personal viewpoint. And to end the episode, I would like to give you this quote. Is there any one word that could guide a person throughout life? The master replied, how about empathy? Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. I hope you enjoyed. It was definitely new for me to record a podcast like this. I would really enjoy feedback if 
anybody wants to take the time, I would greatly appreciate any feedback on my writing, on the podcast. I, like I said, I want to do a book too, where we actually discuss pragmatic policy and stuff like that. And in that, I know that it's really going to be a collective effort. There's no individual who knows all the answers, especially not me. So I want to open a discussion and help people understand why our country looks the way it does. And I will do my best to provide the objective truth while describing the impact that it has on certain communities and the American populace as a whole. But there are points where I will get very impassioned. I can promise you that. So I, I will do my best to stay objective, but my personal values of empathy and inherent, I guess, leftist nature is going to shine through in some aspects. If we want a peaceful and prosperous society, the best way to do that is by extending love and respect to others outside of ourselves. Thank you. And bye.